welcome back to the Hot Spice Show. As always, I'm your host, JC Calavita, a.k.a. Hot Spice. This week, I'd like to talk about certain statistical milestones that MLB players could potentially reach this year. And even though it's a little ways off, I also want to highlight the 2022 Baseball Hall of Fame class and who could get in, who won't get in. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, I also have an interview for today, a freshman right-handed pitcher on the New Orleans Privateers baseball team in the Southland Conference, Patrick Apgar. I played with him a little bit on the New Jersey Niners. He's going to give us some insight of what it's like to pitch at the Division I level. And we're going to end the show talking about another important player that the baseball world seems to have forgotten. So let's get right into the milestones. So first off, we have Miguel Cabrera. He is really close to 500 home runs. He sits at 487. He's going to get 13 home runs this year. He will get his moment in the sun with 500 home runs. And he could also get his 3,000th hit. He's sitting at 2,866. He's only 134 away, which is attainable for this year. He has so many accolades. He is certain to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's a two-time MVP, won the Triple Crown in 2012. He's an 11-time All-Star, seven-time Silver Slugger, four-time batting champ, and a World Series champion in 2003 with those Florida Marlins. Not Miami, Florida. Like, Like I said, there's no doubt he hits 13 homers this year at the very least. He means the same to the Detroit Tigers organization. It's equitable to Albert Pujols. The only, th- the only difference is that he didn't win a World Series, but they were both dominant over a very long stretch at the same position, mind you. He has declined significantly, and I'm sure that in the long run, the Tigers do regret giving him that really, really long contract. He's set to make $30 million this year and $32 million a year from in 2022 and 2023. He, but he did give that city a lifetime of memories, and he will be dearly missed by the baseball community when he finally does decide to call it a career. I expect, actually, the Tigers and the Marlins to retire his number. I expect both of them to do it. Obviously, the Tigers don't need to be explained. He spent so many years there. He was the mo- one of the most important players over that span. Now, the Marlins only spent five years there, but four of those were all-star seasons, and one of those was a rookie year where he contributed a lot to that 2003 World Series championship team. Now, he would be the first Marlins retired number other than Jose Fernandez, whose number has not been officially retired, but it hasn't been worn since his tragic death in 2016. Okay, so staying with home runs here, Chris Davis and Joey Botto are both set up to reach the 300 home run plateau this season. They're both at 295, and although both are clearly in decline, they're no, there's no longer in their prime anymore. It seems unlikely that both won't reach that goal in 2021. The two have had drastically different careers. Despite playing the same position and being of relatively the same stature, they've had very different styles of play. Although he's hit a lot of home runs throughout his career, Joey Votto is no more as a contact hitter who has quality at bats. Votto really strikes out and has a great eye at the plate, which leads him to averaging, he's averaged about 90 walks per season throughout his career. Uh, back in 2018, I remember there was a tweet about how Joey Botto has never popped up to the catcher-pitcher at first base. Now, I'm not sure if that's still a thing. I, I remember hearing about it last year a little bit. Maybe he had popped up to still one of them. But he's had 7,600 plate appearances throughout his career. And to never pop up to those three positions is very, very impressive. Uh, because anybody who knows, if you've played baseball, I'm sure you've popped up your fair share. It's really hard to not do. You have to have your swing on the down angle, Joey Botto is very good at his down angle swing. And another statistic that I found wild was, it, another, it was also from 2018, is Joey Votto swung at the least pitches outside the strike zone, which makes sense because he walked so much. Only 16.1% of his swings from 2017 to mid-2018 were on pitches out of the strike zone. 
That's really good. That's a really good stat. That shows how much plate discipline he has. And comparing that with a near 50% mark from Salvador Perez, I think that's really, really noteworthy. So Votto also is poised to eclipse the milestone of 2,000 hits. He sits at 1,908, just 92 away. And he should also get his 1,000th RBI this season. Although he never had the flashiest stats, Votto was very consistent his whole career. But I, I think he could be a potential Hall of Famer at this point. But I think he needs another solid year or two. Now, Chris Davis, on the other hand, has gone in an entirely different direction. For the first five years of his career, four and a half of which came with the Texas Rangers, he was struggling to get any playing time at all. And he was really trying to get acclimated to the major leagues. So Davis was traded to the Orioles at the deadline in 2011. And by 2012, he really came into his own. He began a wild five-year stretch where he hit 197 home runs, averaging 39 per season. His best season came in 2013, when he essentially took the lead by storm. He led the, the majors in both home runs and RBIs. He started at first base for the American League in the All-Star Game, and he took home a silver slugger while finishing third in the MVP voting. However, one of Davis's downfalls has always been his strikeouts. From 2012 to 2018, Davis's strikeout totals were, at the very least, within 31 strikeouts of 200 in a season, which is a, which is a lot. That's That's a lot. So he's although he's powerful and he was a consistent home run hitter during those five years, he basically fell off a cliff in 2015. His average and his home run total began to drop, and the big contract Baltimore handed him before the 2016 season, seven years, 161 million dollars, it was it looked like a really bad decision. His lowest point came when he began the season 0 for 54, which is the longest hitless drought to begin a, a season by a position player in the history of baseball. Now, Davis is owed $23 million over the next two seasons, and presumably after that, his baseball career will probably end. Chris Davis gave baseball a few fun seasons, but his strikeouts partnered with poor plate discipline really contributed to that demise. So, moving to the mound now, I want to talk about John Lester. Uh, he's a former Boston Red Sox, Oakland A, and Chicago Cub. He is seven wins away from 200 career victories. The 37-year-old signed a one-year, $5 million deal with Washington this offseason, and it seems inevitable that he reaches that 200 wins this coming season. Now, Lester was never the best pitcher in the league. He was a five-time All-Star with three World Series titles, but he was a, he was a crafty lefty, and he put together a really nice career. Lester, along with many athletes, when they reached their late 30s, he, start, he started to, to decline a little bit. Last season, he had a 3-3 three three record with an abysmal 5.16 ERA, a far cry from his superb 2018 campaign where he went 18-6 with a 3.32 ERA. One thing that everybody loves to talk about when it comes to John Lester is his inability to throw to first base. Now, anybody who played baseball after Little League can tell you that one of the most annoying things is having a left-handed pitcher on the mound while you're on first base. I myself have been picked off a few times after being faked out by a good lefty pickoff move, and smart base running was actually something I always prided myself on, and I would get really, really mad when that happened. I think it maybe happened four or five times throughout my whole career, but it's, it's really frustrating when it happens. So Lester really didn't have this kind of presence on the base pads. In 2015, he actually self-diagnosed himself as having the yips. I thought that was really funny. But his legacy won't be that. It'll be how he was a dominant member of two Red Sox World Series teams and being the part of a rotation that brought the first championship to the Chicago Cubs organization in 108 years. That rotation with him and Jake Arrieta, John Lackey, and Kyle Hendricks was really something. Most of those guys are kind of washed up, except for Kyle Hendricks. I, I expect them to have some kind of resurgence this year, but I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed watching them play, but Chicago, I really hope you 
soaked in all that World Series glory because you guys sold your soul. You guys sold your soul for that championship, just like my city of Philadelphia sold our soul for Super Bowl 52. Both teams seemingly have a long rebuild ahead of them. Now for Lester, if he compiles another decent season or two and maybe makes another all-star team, I think he might get into Cooperstown. But as of now, I put him in the, quote, Hall of Very Good, as my father likes to say. Moving over to Lester's new teammate, Max Scherzer, who will most likely record his 3,000th career strikeout in 2021. Scherzer has undoubtedly been one of, if not the best pitcher in baseball for pretty much the last 10 years. Over his career, Mad Max has won three Cy Young Awards, been selected for seven All-Star teams, and has a World Series ring as a member of the 2019 Washington Nationals. Scherzer has led the league in wins four times and strikeouts three times. He was also a part of the inaugural 2019 All-MLB First Team and has thrown two no-hitters. Not to mention, he also tied the single-game record for strikeouts with 20. So I think it's safe to say that Max Scherzer has simply dominated hitters over his 13-year career. And he has shown absolutely no signs of slowing down. So as I mentioned, he's on the doorstep of 3,000 strikeouts. He currently sits at 2784. And if he stays healthy and puts together a season like he has over the past few years, he should reach that mark before September. It's been a little infuriating to watch him mow down my Phillies year after year. But it's been cool to seemingly get a front row seat to watch one of the best pitchers of his generation. He's still got a mid-90s fastball heading into his age 36 season. It's mind-boggling how fast he became a great pitcher and how well he has sustained his form over time. Next season, we should he should reach the 200-win mark. Next season being 2022 as he sits at 175. It would take a crazy good season. 25 wins is is not very common anymore in, in baseball. So I think he, he'll get it 2022, not 2021. I think he's moving his way. He's well on his way toward Hooperstown. His resume is off the charts. And I think a couple of interesting things that people may not know about Max Scherzer is that he is, actually has two different colored eyes. The left one is brown and the right one is blue. And he suffers from a condition called heterochromia iridium. iridium. Heterochromia iridium. Say that five times fast. He threw two immaculate innings also where he struck out three guys on nine pitches. So moving on, moving on to the bullpen now, Aroldis Chapman who has been one of the premier closers since he came into the league. This season, Chapman should earn his 300th save. He only needs 24 to reach that mark, a feat he has exceeded in all but one of his full seasons as his team's closer. Even casual baseball fans know how electric Chapman stuff can be. The 6'4 Cuban delivered the fastest recorded pitch in baseball history in a game on September 24, 2010 against the San Diego Padres. Coincidentally, that was also my ninth birthday. Chapman has been selected for six all-star teams and won the 2016 World Series with the Chicago Cubs, despite giving up the game-tying run in the bottom of the eighth to Rajay Davis. That play resulted in one of my favorite calls of all time. Take it away, Joe Buck. Quick little rant, I might be getting a little hate for this, but I genuinely like Joe Buck. He's not my favorite broadcaster by any means. That title belongs to Harry Callis. Long drive, this ball is out of here. But I did read his book, Lucky Bastard, and now I respect him much, much more. Okay, back to Chapman. Aroldis Chapman, aka the Cuban Missile, has run into trouble with the law during his career. He had a failed attempt to defect from the communist island nation in 2008 and ultimately made it stateside in 2009. The Cincinnati Reds signed him in January of 2010, and he has put on a show for baseball fans for over a decade now. 
being that he is 33, he probably won't reach the plateau of 600 saves like Mariano Rivera, who is the undisputed GOAT of closers, but he has put together an illustrious career and is often regarded as one of the most feared and intimidating players in baseball. He is on a path toward Cooperstown, and when his career is all said and done, former players and fans who were lucky enough to watch him play will talk about his power pitching for many years to come. I've talked about how a lot of these milestones and accolades can turn into a plaque at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Now, those of you who haven't been there, I highly recommend it. It's something that every baseball fan should do at least once in their life. I've been there twice, and I was lucky enough to do it the year my team won the World Series. So this past year, no one received the required 75% of the vote to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. There was nobody in the 2021 Hall of Fame class. So like I said in the intro, I know that the voting for 2022 is a long way away, but I'd like to take a look at the new additions on this ballot, as well as who I think it should get in. Some notable fresh faces on the 2022 Hall of Fame ballot include Alex Rodriguez, David Ortiz, Mark Deshera, Jimmy Rollins, Carl Crawford, Ryan Howard, Prince Fielder, Joe Nathan, and Tim Lincecum. That's not the whole list, but just the ones that stand out the most to me. Personally, I think David Ortiz is the only shoe-in for a first ballot Hall of Famer. I really don't think there's much of an argument. Big Poppy hit 541 home runs at a 286 clip. He made 10 All-Star teams, collected 7 Silver Slugger awards, won 3 World Series, and captured the heart of the Red Sox fans. David Ortiz was also one of the best clutch hitters in the history of baseball. He basically put the 2004 Red Sox on his back to beat the hated Yankees and win the team's first World Series in 85 years, breaking the curse of the Bambino. Not only is he beloved by the city of Boston, but by the baseball community as a whole. If Ortiz is not a first ballot Hall of Famer, the baseball writers have made a huge mistake. So moving on to Alex Rodriguez, he's a weird story. He, yeah, he hit almost 700 home runs, along with numerous all-star game appearances, three MVPs, and a World Series championship. But just like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, his steroid allegations will hold him back. Honestly, I'm not sure if he will ever get immortalized in Cooperstown. I think Jimmy Rollins could make it in, just not the first ballot. I'm not saying that because I have a poster of him on my wall at home which is true, I do have that. J-Roll is the all-time hits leader in Philly's history. He made three all-star teams, won the 2007 MVP and the 2008 World Series. He's just one of three players to hit 200 homers, 100 triples, and steal 400 bases. He was also a vacuum at shortstop as he won He won four gold glove awards, and his defensive run saved is second only behind Troy Tulowitzki from 2003 to 2012. He and Chase Utley form one of the greatest double play combinations of all time. And even if he doesn't get in under the current format, I think he makes a strong play to get in via the Veterans Committee. The last newcomer I'll talk about is Mark Teixeira. Teixeira is one of the best switch hitters of his era. While not being as decorated as as some of his fellow nominees, Teixeira did put together a solid resume. He was a three-time All-Star and a Silver Slugger recipient. He won five gold gloves and was a member of the 2009 World Series champion Yankees. He amassed over 400 home runs for his career and to go along with nearly 2,000 hits. He only played 14 seasons, and honestly, I think he retired with something left in the tank. But he was only 36 at the time, but in his last full season, he hit 204, so maybe he kind of knew he was done. I don't really know how the committee will view Teixeira's career because, as I said, he didn't quite have the sexiest resume, but he was very good for a long period of time. If he doesn't, if he does get in, it'll be on the last few years of eligibility or on the Veterans Committee. So the big three guys that are still on the ballot from last year are Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, and Roger Clemens. Bonds and Clemens are obviously in the same boat as they're both highly suspected of using PEDs. So I don't really think they'll get in at this point. They received 61.8 and 66.6% of the vote respectively last year. I don't see them getting the necessary 75% in 2022. Granted, 
if it never came out that they took steroids, they obviously would have been first ballot Hall of Famers. Now, Kurt Schilling is a different story. He was so dominant through the 90s and early 2000s. He was a six-time All-Star and a three-time World Series champ. He was instrumental in the 2001 and 2004 World Series with the Diamondbacks and the Red Sox. He won co-MVP with Randy Johnson in that 2001 World Series, which honestly is one of my favorite World Series of all time. If you get a chance, look at some highlights, especially Game 7. Wild. Crazy. Luis Gonzalez with that game-winning hit. It's one of my favorite games to watch. So with... 200 career wins and an ERA of 3.46 and over 3,000 strikeouts, you'd think he'd be an automatic for the Hall of Fame. Heading into his final year of eligibility, the only thing holding him back from baseball immortality is honestly the writers. This past year, he was 16 votes shy of being inducted, and he was furious. He actually wants his name off the ballot and moved to the Veterans Committee because he thinks that they know what they're actually talking about. Schilling himself believes that his political views are kind of holding him back. He is an outspoken Republican and Trump supporter and may have ruffled the feathers of the writers. This reminds me of the 1941 MVP race where Joe DiMaggio edged out Ted Williams. DiMaggio did have a 56-game hitting streak that year, but Williams hit 400 and overall finished with a better statistical season. The reason he didn't get any votes is because the writers didn't like him. And honestly, I think this is asinine in the sense that the political views don't affect how his major league career panned out. And the last time I checked, this is America and people are allowed to believe whatever they want. In my mind, like many other baseball fans across the country, Kurt Schilling deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Okay, now we're going to transition into the interview portion of today's episode. On the line, I have right-handed pitcher for the 5-7 and seven New Orleans Privateers of the Southland Conference, Patrick Apgar. How you doing, Pat? I'm good. How are you? Doing nice. So how's 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 the weather out there today? Because here it's you know cold and rainy. I just got back from a bike where I I just got completely soaked. How's the weather in Louisiana? Well, it's like a little bit partly cloudy right now, around seventy five. Pretty nice. All right, Pat. Let's get into this. So give me a scouting report on yourself. Uh, I mean, not much like really to say. I mean, I'm kind of down right now. You know, have an arm injury, so you know. Proceeding with that, we'll see what happens, you know. What's your um, repertoire like? Like, give me, like, what pitches you throw. Like, what makes – like, what kind of pitcher are you? So, I'm not really, like, a strikeout pitcher, I'd say. I mean, I have a fastball, which can get up to the nines, you know. Uh, good – I got a good curveball, 12-6. We got a little slider action, and I've been working on a new, uh, new changeup. It was pretty dirty. Is it, like, a circle change or a split change or something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a circle change, but I kind of hold it off the two seam a little bit, so it kind of, like, dives down, if that makes sense. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think sets you apart from other pitchers? Probably my height, like, if I'm going to be serious. I mean, I'm a 6'8 right-handed pitcher, and, I mean, most of the guys on my team are 6'2", 6'4". What does your height do for you? Like, does it give you – what kind of advantage does it give you? Uh, So my arm slot's, like, way up over here. And with that coming down on the angle, it's definitely, like, a harder plane for the batters to hit, especially with movement. What was your recruiting process like? Oh, the recruiting process. That was fun. Uh, So starting my sophomore year is when I really started to hear from colleges, but things really started getting serious towards the middle of junior year, and I made my uh, decision going into senior year. So it was that junior summer. Yeah, I heard from a good about schools. What schools were interested in you other than New Orleans? Uh, I had St. Joe's, Delaware State, and I heard a little bit from uh, some, like, JUCOs, D2s. And, I mean, I had some, like, prospect camps from, like, other schools, but those are just, you know, formalities. What made you choose New Orleans? 
the coaching staff, coaching staff, I really liked them. It was a bunch of young guys. I mean, we have uh, Coach Blake Dean who played at LSU with, you know, All-American, just just a baller. And then my pitching coach, Coach A.J. Batisto, phenomenal. Like, words can't describe how good he did as his job, at his job. Yeah, so I followed you guys on Instagram, and it said that, yeah, so I saw that your coach played at LSU, and you guys played LSU yesterday. Uh, did you travel with the team for that game? We were actually home for that game, yeah. Oh, you were home for that game. Okay. Oh, yeah, because I saw it was, I saw it was, uh, this it was sold out. So, what's it like playing an SEC team? It was packed. Like just the people who came around for that game, it was definitely more than we've ever had. And the, the stadium was electric. Like it was, it was a good game. What's being in a Division One dugout like? Man, we chirp. We like to chirp a good bit, but when it uh, comes down to it, we're all here for one goal. Like we all want to win. And that's what I love about this team. Like, we're all winners. Like, that's what we want. So what are some perks of being a Division One athlete? Because I know you guys get more merch and, and more privileges than D2 or D3 or even JUCO athletes. Oh, I would say the perks about being a D1 athlete is, like, they're, they're here for you. Like, you got a good weight room. We have good trainers here. We get a lot of stuff to wear. And academically, like, they're here for you. Uh, we have study hall, which is good. And it helps me get my work done. You can go out and get a tutor whenever you like. What's your average day like? How do you, and how do you balance with school and baseball? So what we did here is all, all the players classes are supposed to be done by one o'clock and then proceeding with that. Like it depends on what day, like you could have lifts or you could go straight to practice. But what I do mostly is I'll get my classes out of the way. I'll go work out, go see the trainer. And then I'll head on over to practice, come home around 5.30, get some dinner, and then just go back at it with homework. So what do you think – what would you say is the biggest difference between high school and college baseball? I mean, definitely like the competitive edge. Like everyone's here for a reason. You know, high school, you know, you played with your friends, whatever. Some of the kids weren't that great. But here they're all good or else they wouldn't be here. The strike zone's a little bit smaller, so you definitely got to locate better. And have a, I would say you need a definitely a third pitch. Like you can't just make a living off of two pitches here. So I know you haven't made your col or have you haven't made your collegiate debut yet, right? I have not. No. So how far? I know you told me you're injured. How far away are you to playing? Uh, so I decided that I was going to redshirt this year and just focus on and like the weight room and make sure my grades are good. That way I can come back and bounce back for a stronger season next year. Okay. So what would be your goal for next season then? Uh, definitely gain some more weight, gain some VLO, uh, and just become more mobile. I would say my mobility is like lacking a little bit and I definitely need to build that up. That's a, those are really good goals. Um, do you have, so you said you have three pitches. Are you, are you trying to develop a fourth or I know you told me about the changeup, but would you consider developing a fourth pitch? Uh, I mean, how I said it out is, you know, fastball going attack, curveballs like the 0-2 pitch, the sliders, like any count. And then the changeup is a, what I really want to like hone in on and focus on because I feel like I could make that pitch really good. And I'm just this close away, you know. So what do you think that your club team offered you that high school baseball couldn't give you? The competition getting me out in front of scouts. I mean, I came from a really small high school, and, I mean, we weren't that great. But uh, I played with the Niners, you know, great team, great club. 
and they just they just got me out there and the coaches helped me all along the way I was working out there it was just great it was a good experience how have you adjusted living so far from home uh, living living from home is definitely more fun I mean I made a lot of friends but I'm still on a good schedule I still got a good sleep schedule I do what I need to get done and then you know you have to have a good mix of relaxing and getting stuff done so I didn't realize that uh, New Orleans is like an hour behind the East Coast. So what's that like? What's what's the time change been like? <laughs> the time change is what really messes me up. I mean, I'm fine here now, but when I go back home or I come back here, it's like always a little bit weird. Like I just got to adjust a little bit. What's your favorite thing about the city of New Orleans? The food. The food the here food. is like to die for. It's phenomenal. I mean, they got jambalaya, gumbo, uh, crawfish etouffee, which is really good. And the list can just go on. Like, it's great. Like, the city life is perfect, too. So what do you miss most about the Jersey Shore? The beaches. Just the beaches? The beaches were fun. How has your workout routine changed since coming to college? Uh, So back in high school, I was kind of like a little lost puppy. I mean, I just did what people, like, told me to do. But now um, while I'm in college, like, I've definitely, like, expanded my knowledge. I know what I'm doing and the reason why I'm doing it, you know. And it's a good it's a good amount of everything, I would say. What has been the most surreal thing about coming to this team? Because for me, I know it would be seeing my name on a locker or getting a jersey with my with getting a jersey with my name on the back. I think that'd be really cool. But what's been like the most surreal moment for you? Putting on those cleats and just stepping out on the field with all those fans there. I mean, the fans make the games. We have a great crowd every time. And being with those teammates, we're always fired up. I'd say that's the most surreal thing. All right. Well, thank you very much, Pat. I uh, wish you best of luck in the future, and I hope that your I hope that your injury heals itself up so you can get back on the field next year and ball it out. Yes, sir. Thank you, John. Thank you, Pat. One of the nicest guys around, and I can't wait to watch him do incredible things on the mound. It's time for the player of the week now. This week's highlighted player is Rick Monday. So some of you may know who that is. Rick Monday was a member of the 1965 College World Series champion Arizona State Sun Devils. That season, he won College Player of the Year and was recognized as an All-American. He was drafted first overall by the Kansas City Athletics in 1965, and he was the first player drafted ever. Like, that 1965 MLB player draft was the very first draft ever held, and Rick Monday owns the distinction of being the first player ever drafted. He also spent some time in the U.S. Marine Corps as a reserve for six years of his MLB career. Monday played for the Kansas City slash Oakland A's, Chicago Cubs, and Los Angeles Dodgers over his 19-year career, in which he made two all-star teams. He hit 241 homers and knocked in 775 runs at a clip of 264 while winning a World Series in 1981 with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Monday carved out a nice career for himself. He wasn't a nobody in the league, but he wasn't one of the stars either. The thing he's best known for really isn't even baseball-related. It was Sunday, April 25, 1976, the year of the bicentennial. Monday, a member of the Cubs at the time, thought he was just getting ready to play a standard Sunday afternoon game away against the Los Angeles Dodgers. So you have to remember, patriotism is at an all-time high during this time in America. The Vietnam War has been over for nearly a year now, and Americans are gearing up to celebrate the nation's 200th anniversary. Monday was playing center field that day, and in the bottom of the fourth inning, two protesters ran onto the field and began to set fire to an American flag. This is what Monday did next. Rick Monday runs and takes it away from him as 
on Monday, I think a guy was going to set fire to the American flag. Can you imagine that? Rick Monday saw the protesters and scooped up the American flag to a thunderous round of applause from the opposing team's fans. When Monday came to bat in the top of the fifth, he was greeted with a standing ovation. The message board, which at the time was manual, said, Rick Monday, you made a great play. Monday actually got to keep the flag he rescued from those protesters. Now, I'm not a political person, but I do believe we can all learn something from Rick Monday. He stood up for his country and what he believed in. He was a Marine at heart and was appalled at what he saw. I don't care if you're conservative or liberal or moderate or what race or gender you are. We should be proud to live in America, proud to live in a place where we are free to have our own opinions and protest things we don't feel is right. We should be thankful that every one of us has the opportunity to make our voices heard. So thank you, Rick Monday. Thank you for showing me what it means to be a true American. All right, everyone, that'll just about do it for this edition of the Hot Spice Show. Thank you so much for listening. I plan on releasing new episodes every Thursday. I love doing this. I hope you all continue listening so I can keep doing this. Make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at J underscore Colavita 12. That's J underscore C-O-L-A-V-I-T-A 12. I'd like to thank Pat Afgar for taking the time to do an interview, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I look forward to you guys joining me next week. And one more time, I'm JC Calavita, a.k.a. Hot Spice, and this has been the Hot Spice Show. Peace, bros.